It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 169 for November 15th, 2009. By the way, there's no program next week. Because of the Thanksgiving holiday, I'll be taking the week off. Of course, this is the holiday that's celebrated a month earlier in Canada. TechBiter Worldwide will return on the 29th of November, 2009. I took a look back through some of the older programs on TechBiter Worldwide back to Technology Corner and find that I've written about AVG antivirus a total of 42 times. I started in 2002. Back then, I wrote about the excessive use of system resources by Norton Antivirus. Well, on November 1st, when I sent a message to AVG asking for a refund of the two-year license that I had renewed in October, I said that AVG now uses so many system resources that I cannot use the computer. I have followed the instructions from your support staff, and the problem has only become worse. (sighs) In other words, it had become the problem it replaced. You'll probably want to know the entire story behind that. And here it is. This first part may seem a bit unrelated, but bear with me for just a moment. For the past year or so, Carrie Driscoll and the quality assurance team and development staff at Carbonite, the online backup service I use, have been working with me to track down a problem with extremely high disk usage. I've sent Carbonite logs and screenshots and system information files all to no avail. They simply couldn't replicate the problem. They tried. In October, I started noticing a problem with AVG, a process that is supposed to run just once, and catalog system files seemed to be running constantly. AVG's tech support people asked for logs. They had me delete files and reinstall parts of the application. Around Halloween, the AVG process started using so many system resources that I could do nothing on the computer. Literally, nothing. I was trying to compose an email message, and I could get 70 to 80 characters ahead of the display. I would type and type and type. Nothing showed up on the screen. Then 30 seconds or a minute later, the text would appear. It took nearly 10 minutes to get the Windows 7 resource monitor open, and when I finally got it open, the problem was obvious. AVGCHSVX.exe, under process ID 440, was trying to read and write a total of 57 megabytes per second to my disk drive. No wonder I couldn't do anything. AVG's run-once, low-resource application had simply gone wild. I had never seen memory or disk usage so high for a single application, So I uninstalled AVG antivirus and installed the free version of a vast antivirus. System resource usage returned to normal, and it stayed normal even when Carbonite was scanning directories. So it turned out I was blaming the wrong application for making my computer sluggish. It wasn't Carbonite after all. The root cause of the problem appears to have been AVG antivirus. Why it typically caused Carbonite's usage numbers to peak isn't clear. But what I know is this. Having removed AVG antivirus, I now find the system to be usable at all times, even if a vast is performing a full disk scan 
while Carbonite is searching for files to back up. I'm not quite ready to endorse a vast antivirus yet, but I can say this. The system is much more usable with AVG antivirus gone. And let's talk about Carbonite. Here's something to think about. Your computer is worthless. It's the data on the computer that has value. Losing data is like a collision at sea. It can ruin your whole day. I've lost data, and I didn't like it. In fact, I remember the first time I lost data. It was back in the 1980s. I was working on a new desktop computer with two floppy disk drives. Two floppy disk drives. Wowee. I was writing a program in a database language, and I wanted to make sure that I had a backup copy just in case something happened. So I copied the file from one floppy disk to the other. The result? Two corrupt floppies and no backup. That was disappointing. It's easy to have data destroyed by a rogue program, hardware failure, or even user error. Yes, I have deleted the wrong file before. That's what backup applications are for. I have a hot backup. It's a disk that sits beside my computer, a USB drive, and I use Always Sync to back up all of my current working files to that device. The hot backup is handy when the desktop computer crashes because I can simply unplug it from the desktop machine and plug it into a notebook computer. That way I'm back in business in less than five minutes. And yes, I have done this. But that's not really a backup. A fire or some sort of natural disaster could kill both the computer and the hot backup. So I use a Cronus True Image to back up the drives on my computer to an external hard drive that I store at the office. The Acronis backups are always at least a week out of date because I bring the drives home and run a backup only on Wednesday, when I remember it, if I'm not too busy. So it doesn't always happen on Wednesday. The real safety net, and it's one that has saved me more times than I like to admit, is Carbonite. It's easy to make a dumb mistake that deletes files that I need. I can get them back for my hot backup, but more often than not, I've simply recovered them from Carbonite. A lot of people are apparently turning to online backup. When I spoke with Carbonite CEO David Friend, he told me that business is booming. This most recent quarter was up well over 100% over last year. So, you know, couldn't really ask for more. In a crappy economy. It almost sounds like you don't have too many challenges in getting people to uh, to take a look at this, but what would you characterize as the biggest challenges you have in, you know, in convincing somebody that uh, an online backup service is a good idea? Trust is a is a big issue uh, for anybody who's you know asking someone to store their private information in the cloud. It wasn't that long ago that most people were very suspicious of online retailing, and it just takes time to overcome that. If a company like Carbonite ever compromised the privacy of their data, we would be probably out of business. So. You know, we take it extremely seriously, and we try to convey that to people. In in terms of trust and uh, security and safety, talk a little bit about how the system works and how you strive to protect the data, both in transit and and when it's on your servers. Uh, I think like most people in this industry, we encrypt the data before it leaves the PC. You know, we don't ever want to deal with unencrypted data in our data center, and, you know, we want to make it impossible or at least extremely difficult for 
even for a Carbonite employee to be able to go in and poke around in somebody's data. And then there's just a lot of internal policies and procedures about who gets to access which segments of our production system. Do you have uh, kind of a general handle on, let's say, the average user sends you? I'll give you a range bill because we don't, uh, that number is actually very proprietary but it's in the range of 20 to 50 gigabytes average per customer. I think at one point you had given me kind of a guess as to how many disk drives you had, what the the uh, physical amount of storage was. Can you can you talk about well, I that? I think it's about 16 or 17 petabytes today. And we add a petabyte about every three weeks. I know that because I sign the purchase orders. Now, when somebody signs up for the service, talk a little bit about what is backed up by default and what kinds of uh, files, are, if any, are, are skipped by default. Well, we don't back up your operating system or your executables by default. For the most part, those would not work if you restored them to a new computer, you know, because most Microsoft applications are licensed to the hardware on which they were originally installed. As far as content goes, we we don't you know we try to skip things like log files and, and temporary files, internet cache and things like that because again those are are junk files. The only thing that of consequence that we skip uh, normally would be uh, that you have to explicitly go and say I do want to back these up as movies. The reason we skip those is because most times it's they're not home movies. Most of the time they are. TV shows and things like that that people have recorded, yes. and the volumes are frequently way too big to be backed up over a DSL line. So we, we try to make it very clear in the product that if you've got home movies to back up or clips off your off your iPhone or something like that that you want to upload, you know, you got to open the directory and select those things to back up. And if I have a, a hard disk failure and I need to restore the entire hard drive with the operating system and everything, obviously Carbonite would not be a good way to do that. So I like to keep image around. I do the exact same thing. And uh, I, I actually think there's a real argument to use both. You're precisely right about that. I used to take my uh, disk image off-site. Um, I don't anymore because the, the most likely failure is going to be something destroys my hard drive in my PC. The, the chances of the house burning down or somebody breaking in and stealing all my equipment and so forth is is a much lesser problem. So the way I look at it is, for me personally, is the trouble of taking the uh, disk image off-site is uh, is kind of like not worth it for me because if if the house ever burned down, you know, I can always replace my software. What I can't replace is my content. And so I'm, I'm happy with the idea that if the house burned down and everything got destroyed, I'd have to go buy a new PC and, you know, reload all my software and then restore all my files from Carbonite. And the other thing I've changed, the other habit I've changed since getting Carbonite is I don't do a disk image very often. So I, I typically only run a new disk image when I've changed my software. So like if I load a new program on my PC, then I'll run a new disk image. Even if my disk image is three months old, uh, you know, if I lost my hard drive, I could get all my Windows programs and applications back because I haven't changed them in three months, and then I can just update my documents and settings folders off of Carbonite because that's continuous mm -hmm. in the background. So that that's the other 
behavior that has changed as a result of having carbonite. During our conversation, Friend told me about a relatively new remote access function that allows a user to access any file that has been backed up by logging into their account from any computer with Internet access. The computer doesn't even need to have carbonite installed. One of the things that we have that a lot of people don't realize we have is this you know remote file access and when they find out they can use it <laughs> they're delighted <laughs> why didn't you tell me about that so you can go open any web browser and uh, go to the carbonite website click on the remote access button and uh, just using a browser you can access anything in your backups for many of your pcs And I actually end up using that quite a bit. You know, if I'm traveling somewhere and I need to print something out and I don't have my laptop with me, I can just go down to the hotel business center, log in, pull up the document or whatever that I want to print, and then just look at it there. You'll have to put me on the uh, side of the list that says I didn't know about that. We haven't publicized the the feature a lot because it makes the marketing message confusing. You know, it's Mm -hmm. no longer just a, you know, Pay me $55 and I'll back up your data. But if you go to the Carbonite homepage, carbonite.com, and look in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a tab that says Remote Access. Put in your email address and password, and, uh, you know, it'll bring up a folder-level view of all of your backed-up files. Carbonite CEO David Friend. The Remote Access feature makes Carbonite, which was a pretty good value anyway, an even better value. Carbonite's goal all along has been to make backup easy to use. By setting a single price for all users, regardless of how much data is backed up, to automatically backing up all internal hard drives, the company has succeeded in making it easy. Once installed, Carbonite appears in the system tray, or the notification area, depending on what you want to call it, to show that it's running. Double-clicking the icon opens a control panel. The control panel shows how much data you've already backed up with Carbonite, how much remains to be backed up, both the number of files remaining and the number of bytes. You'll also see the name of any file that is currently being backed up. The options screen has a Spartan series of selections, but additional features have been added. Users now have a single-click option to make some changes in how Carbonite works. And if you want Carbonite to run just once a day or to avoid certain hours, the backup schedule screen allows this. When Carbonite is used to back up office computers, for example, the users might want to schedule all backups during times when the office is closed to avoid saturating their Internet connection. The key to any backup program is how easy it is to restore files. Carbonite allows you to search for a specific file if you know its name, to browse the online directory of files, or to restore everything if your hard drive has suffered a catastrophic failure. As David Friend said in our discussion, Carbonite does not back up the operating system or program files. This means you need to keep all of your original installation CDs and DVDs, or you'll need to occasionally create a disk image with an application such as a Cronus True Image to restore those components and then use Carbonite to restore your data. And, by the way, who would throw away CDs and DVDs? Yeah, there are people who do that. I suspect they're the same people who used to throw away photographic negatives. A new feature that Friend described in the second part of the discussion is that remote access. Simply visit the Carbonite website and provide your user ID and your password. You then have access to every file that Carbonite has ever backed up for you. No special software is needed on the computer used for remote access because the application is browser-based. This means you can download and print or work on any file that's been backed up. If you travel a lot, 
This feature could be extremely useful. The bottom line for backup, four or five cats, affordable, easy to use, and secure. Initially, I was suspicious of online backup. As a result, I still maintain local backups of critical files. But every time I've called on Carbonite to restore a needed file, I have recovered it, and in just a few minutes. The new remote access feature makes the application even better. For more information, check the Carbonite website. You'll find a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Over the years, I have been less than complimentary about the Recording Industry Association of America. In fact, I think the final A, rather than standing for America, might better be represented by the name of an animal, sometimes considered to be synonymous with mule or burrow. But then I'm not a musician. Maybe musicians have a different opinion of the RIAA. Or maybe not. It seems that some musicians that I respect have the same opinion of the RIAA. Janice Ian is one of them. Ian has had a few major hits and several minor hits since the 1960s. She is a hard worker who makes money from performing. Isn't that what performers are supposed to do? She's not exactly a fan of the RIAA's position on illegal downloading of music. I quote Janice Ian, The Internet and downloading are here to stay. Anyone who thinks otherwise should prepare themselves to end up on the slag heap of history. Janice Ian said that in a European radio interview in September of 1998. That was before the advent of iTunes. This is a long-held conviction. But even worse than the RIAA is the NARAS. That's the National Academy of Recording Arts and Science. NARAS told Ian that downloads were destroying sales, ruining the music industry, and costing you money. Her response? Costing me money? I don't pretend to be an expert on intellectual property law, but I do know one thing. If a music industry executive claims I should agree with their agenda because it'll make me more money, I put my hand on my wallet, and I check it after they leave just to make sure nothing's missing. Now, of course, this is not to suggest that the recording industry has ever shortchanged an artist who would ever think such a thing might occur. Ian's view differs a good bit from the RIAA and the NARAS. She explains it fully on her website, and there's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. According to her, and I quote, The premise of all this ballyhoo is that the industry and its artists are being harmed by free downloading. Nonsense. By way of explanation, Ian notes her own personal experience. Again, I quote, My site gets an average of about 75,000 hits a year. Not bad for someone whose last hit record was in 1975. When Napster was running full tilt, we received about 100 hits a month from people who had downloaded Society's Child or At 17 for free and decided they wanted more information. Of those 100 people, and these are only the ones who let us know that they'd found the site, 15 bought CDs. Not huge sales, right? No record company is interested in 180 extra sales per year, but that translates into $2,700, which is a lot of money in my book. And it doesn't include the ones who bought CDs in stores or who came to my shows. In other words, it's all about publicity. It was only 40 years ago that the recording industry got into a lot of trouble for paying disc jockeys to play records so that people could hear them for free on the radio. Somehow the industry has forgotten that publicity leads to concert ticket sales and to purchases. It's true that some people will take all the free downloads they can get and never buy a thing, but others will take the free downloads, decide they want more, or decide they want the liner notes, 
and either buy a CD or they'll buy a legitimate download. Ian says that she has found this to be true. Every time we make a few songs available on my website, she says, sales of all the CDs go up a lot. And I don't know about you, but as an artist with an in-print record catalog that dates back to 1965, I'd be thrilled to see sales on my old catalog rise. Ian no longer works for a major label. She records and markets all of her own materials. She says there is zero evidence that material available for free online downloading is financially harming anyone. In fact, most of the hard evidence is to the contrary. We put our money where my mouth is, she says. We offer songs in MP3 format for free downloading. And if we can ever afford the server space, we'll try to put a bunch of them up all at once. These are songs I own and control, both the copyright and the master too. You're welcome to share these files with your friends. There are links to some other articles by Janice and on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Interesting things to think about. In short circuits, Intel is sending advanced micro devices one and a quarter billion dollars. And they're not doing this just to be friendly. Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, Intel continues to maintain that it never used improper actions in competing with advanced micro devices, AMD. Still, Intel has agreed to pay AMD one and a quarter billion dollars to settle antitrust and patent suits. Intel has about 80% of the CPU market for microprocessors. The much smaller AMD will withdraw a suit filed in 2005 and several regulatory complaints filed in Europe. The European Union has already fined Intel $1.5 billion. That doesn't end Intel's legal troubles, though. New York state authorities are considering a suit, and the Federal Trade Commission is investigating. In a prepared statement, Intel CEO Paul Ottolini said the company continues to believe that its discounts are lawful and in the best interest of consumers. In some cases, those discounts were available only if computer manufacturers refused to buy any AMD products. Adelini says Intel will stop offering price discounts that are dependent on restricting the buyer's ability to purchase from competitors. But the company denies it ever did that. New York State and European investigators, however, have previously released correspondence from executives at HP, Dell, and other manufacturers. In those messages, the computer company executives said that Intel would raise prices if they did any business with AMD. Intel says the messages were taken out of context and that the executives were mistaken in their beliefs. My cell phone rang. I was expecting a call, so I didn't even glance at the caller ID. This is a notice from your credit card, the message said. There is no problem with your account, but you could qualify for a lower interest rate as low as 4.5%, but you must apply today. For more information, press 9 to talk with an operator. I was annoyed. I don't like phone spam, and all of my numbers are listed on the federal do not call list. So I pressed 9 to advise the caller of that fact. Are you calling to learn more about the low interest rate? A woman asked. No, I said, I'm calling to advise you that this number is on the federal do not... And at that point, she hung up. And then I looked at the caller ID, area 305. That would put the caller in Florida. And the number? 0004523. But that's impossible, you might say. And you would be right. There is no 000 exchange anywhere. So clearly it was a scam. But what's the game? 
First, though, I have to wonder how any cell phone provider can allow a call with a clearly forged caller ID to pass through their system. This borders on criminal negligence, in my mind. My provider happens to be T-Mobile, but I doubt that any other provider does a better job. The network must be able to read the caller ID, and it could be designed, I would think, easily to block calls with invalid numbers, and this ought to be done by default. I've done some research on these calls. One sure way i found to get the caller to hang up is to ask what credit card they're calling about. They won't know. They won't know your credit card number either, and if you bite, they'll want you to tell them what it is, for verification, of course, and for your safety. And they'll also want to confirm your mailing address. They'll want to confirm your security question. They'll want to confirm the CCV number from the back of your card, and they'll want to confirm the expiration date. Once they've confirmed all of that information, they'll have everything they need to use your credit card number to make online purchases. Identity theft. Some cell phone companies apparently do offer to block calls from unidentified callers, but this will block only calls that have no number associated. A bogus number would still apparently get through. Stupid or criminal? You choose. The cell phone companies should do more to put an end to this kind of abuse. In the meantime, you'll just need to be cautious. But that's a good idea anyway. Remember, no show next week. See you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.